continue our trek through the New Testament book of Hebrews. Uh, we are in chapter 10, so if you have a Bible or device you want to turn or swipe there, you can go ahead and do that. Otherwise, you'll be able to follow along on the screen behind me when we read. Um, so, up here we have a, a title slide, okay? So I usually don't say anything about the title slide at all. It's just kind of like, oh, there it is, and then we move on from it but not this morning. So the title of our sermon is Jesus is Faithful. Jesus is Faithful. So uh, if you grew up in the church, have been around church for a while, you would know that that's a pretty standard Christian statement. The Christian faith is built on that reality that Jesus is faithful. The first nine plus chapters of Hebrews have dealt with this truth that Jesus is faithful from varying aspects. We've learned of many others who have lacked faithfulness in contrast to Jesus' faithfulness. We've seen how our own unfaithfulness to Jesus leads us into sin. It leads us into anxiety. It leads us into fear and and many other things. And we've learned about how we yearn for one who's faithful. We desire one who is faithful. So the whole of the book of Hebrews has made truth claims about Jesus and his faithfulness. We've talked about him being the great high priest, that he is the fulfiller of promises, that his sacrifice is superior, that he ushers in a much better covenant. When I say covenant, I mean a way in which God relates to humanity. We've been reminded of the fact that he's more powerful than angels and everything and everyone else. That he is the only place that true rest is found. So all of these statements, these are what we would call indicatives. Okay, These are statements of facts. Statements that we should believe. Now, uh, after the author of Hebrews has made all of these truth statements about Jesus... We now begin in the last few chapters to get some pictures of what belief in Jesus looks like. Putting flesh on it. This is what it will look like in your lives if you are believing the gospel. Another way to express this is these are imperatives. These are things to do. But don't hear things to do as Old Testament commands. These are are more kind of guidelines. If you are believing the gospel... This is what your life will look like. And so, on our title slide this morning, what we see is Jesus is faithful, followed by not a period, but dot, dot, dot. Because if Jesus is faithful, and if we believe that, it then forms us. It will form our lives. It will form the way that we think. It will form our actions. So the dot, dot, dot is pointing to the shapes and the forms that this will take in our lives, in the lives of those who believe the gospel. All right, so let's read Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read six verses beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain— that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, so we're going to begin with kind of another summary. The first few verses are a summary of what Hebrews has said already. Uh, but then uh, we're going to move in the last number of verses. We get some really strong words. We get this is what believing the gospel looks like, but, but there's also a rebuke in there, a loving rebuke, but a rebuke nonetheless. And I was thinking about this uh, this past week. So recently, uh, our family was out shopping, and we were coming out of a store, <clears throat> and our four-year-old Roxy walked out of the store, and she was making a beeline just to the car, right? And so she's passing the sidewalk and about to go into traffic, and I said, Roxy, stop! And I, I said it very sternly, because I wanted her to stop. And she kind of melted, began crying, and that, because I scared her. My, my words felt harsh to her. B but I didn't speak the way that I spoke because I was mad at her, because I was trying to me be mean to her. I spoke the way that I spoke because I love her, because I cared about her. I wanted her to stop there so she didn't walk into oncoming traffic. And, and that's what we get this morning as well. We, we get some words that are written and spoken with some intensity, with some fervor, but they're not hatred in any way whatsoever. They are spoken out of a concerned love for the reader and the listener. Okay, but let's start with verses 19 through 21. These are a quick summation of what the author has been speaking about over the last few chapters. So Jesus is the great priest that we read in, in verse 21. Jesus is that great priest. He is the one who rules over God's house. So I want to take a little rabbit trail here when we think about God's house, okay? When we hear God's house, we should think of people. We should not think of structure. God's house is those who have trusted in Jesus. It's his church. In Hebrews 3, 6, so we covered this verse months ago, is helpful here. It says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. So we being those who are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus' church, that is who God's house is. So God's house is not a building. It's not inanimate. It's not dead in any way. This also means that we don't go to church. Okay? We don't go to church, which infers a building. We gather with the church together. And here's why this is important. Okay? The way we talk and the words that we use matter. They do matter. If church is a place we go, or an activity that we do, it is then one of many things that we are engaged in in our lives. Okay, so like if you have a bookshelf, it's one of the books on the bookshelf. 
if church is a descriptor of us rather than a descriptor of a building, it speaks to identity. It speaks to who we are. So church is not what we do. Church is who we are. At least, it's who we are for those who have trusted in Jesus' sacrifice for sins. Okay, but the reference to Jesus being the great priest here in verse 21 is tied then to verses 19 and 20. In that Jesus offered his body. Okay, so he's the priest who's coming, he's bringing the sacrifice. He shed his own blood as the sacrifice for sin. So as priests in the Old Testament offered uh, insufficient sacrifice, Jesus then came and he offered the one sufficient sacrifice for sin, to cover the sin of those trusting in him, to end the old system, the old way of doing things. By offering his life, then Jesus made it possible for us to enter into God's presence. It's the only way that we can get into God's presence. Verse 20 says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. So, as Jesus died on the cross, okay, he's dying on the cross. If someone was in the temple, the temple in Jerusalem at that time, the temple curtain, so the cur- there's a curtain in the temple that would prohibit people from going into the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the sacrifices were offered, okay? So that temple curtain, which prohibited entrance to God's presence, was torn or opened as Jesus died on the cross. So what we find is that the curtain that kept people out is replaced by Jesus welcoming people into God's presence. Because of Jesus, we have access to God in a way that the high priest, the priest, the nation of Israel never had. We can confidently, without fear, be near to God because of Jesus' sacrifice. No matter what you might feel, in your own life, in your own experience. We can be near to God because of Jesus' sacrifice. And that is why we read in verse 19 that we are able to confidently draw near to God. So not just draw near to God, but confidently draw near to God. Not hesitantly, not sheepishly, but with confidence. And the reason we enter with confidence is because our entering into God's presence is based on Jesus' sacrifice. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on what we have done or how we have lived, which is sinfully. It's based on Jesus' sacrifice. Okay, so these are all indicative statements that we have heard over and over thus far in Hebrews to the point that some of you may feel inoculated to them. You, you might find yourself, even right now, tuning out. And I'm sure three-quarters of us might be tuning out. We've heard this, right? You may unconsciously think, I've got this. Yeah, I, I know these realities. But I want to take us back to chapter 3 of Hebrews, where we heard a very stark warning. It said there, If you hear 
God's voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. And, and so in this case, don't assume that you can just coast. Don't assume that you've got this figured out, that, that you know this perfectly. Because when we do that, what that is is confidence in ourselves. We are called to confidence in Jesus. Okay, so the indicative statements of Jesus' priesthood, his sacrifice, his superiority, those are things we have to hear over and over, but then we have to exercise faith in those things. Okay, those indicative statements, as they're believed, they create confidence in us. Confidence in two ways. So vertical confidence and horizontal confidence. I want to talk about vertical confidence first. What I mean by this is confidence to approach God. So God is above us, okay? We can vertically approach God. We can have confidence to go to him, to be near to God because of what Jesus has done for us. And we read in verse 19 an assumption of confidence, okay? It says there, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. So confidence is spoken here of a reality that was achieved or secured in the past. It's something that has happened already. But it also continues to have implications in the present. And, and notice it's also outside of us. So it has a, this enduring quality and it's something that's outside of us. So confidence here that's been spoken of here is not cockiness. Okay, it's not confidence that has a swagger. There's no chest thumping with this confidence. We have confidence because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. But then notice, we have confidence to enter the holy places. That's God's place. So we have confidence to enter God's place. Now when we think of entering God's place or God's presence, many of us can think of like fancy things, right? Or like dressing to the nines, maybe. So we've got to look good, we've got to smell good to be in God's presence. We, we think God deserves our very best. And that's not totally untrue. This is where the idea uh, in years past, the idea like wear your best clothes to church, that, that's where that idea came from. We've got to look good for God, all the while our hearts might be a mess, right? And we, we talked last week about this reality. God doesn't care about our sacrifices and offerings. He doesn't care about the externals. He cares about our hearts. So, there's this reality that God does deserve our very best. I, I think that there is truth to that. So I, I don't want to minimize that. But I do think that we greatly overestimate our best at times. So when we think of entering into God's presence, if, if we think about just like dressing up, that, that's not that great. But, but if we think about entering into God's presence, I think the way in which we can most appropriately imagine ourselves doing that is, is like huffing and puffing, sweaty, stinky, uh, unkempt, kind of dragging ourselves in in sweatpants and, and a stained t-shirt as we barge into God's living room. Like, like the way you roll out of bed on Saturday morning, that, that I think is how we can better view ourselves coming into God's presence. If we understand the gospel, if we understand the gospel, 
we are confident to go to Jesus in that condition. Because to understand the gospel means we understand what I just described is much better than we were when Jesus came to us. It says in the Bible that when Jesus came to us, we were dead in our sin. Okay, so, so we weren't even able to stand up and put on nice clothes, spiritually speaking. We, we couldn't even go find Jesus. We were dead in our sin. We needed him to come to us. Romans 5.8 says this. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this idea that Jesus isn't coming to us because we have nice clothes on. He's not coming to us because we went to church that week. He's coming to us while we are sinning in the midst of our mess. Jesus comes to rescue the needy and to save the hopeless. And this is a really important picture for us to understand. Last week we were talking about the goodness of God, and I was pressing us that I don't think we believe that God is as good as he really is. So this week I was walking to school with my nine-year-old Summer, and I was explaining to her this upcoming event that we have uh, for basketball. And so uh, the high school girls basketball team, they're hosting this youth night. And so they're inviting all the youth basketball girls to come. They get to be on the court. They get to come in the locker room before the game and hear the coach talk to them and be behind the bench and, like, give high fives as the girls are introduced and so forth. And, and that's all good and fine. Summer's excited for that. And, the, and then I, I told her this one last piece of information which I knew that she would have issue with. And I said, and honey, your team gets to go on the court at halftime and play five-on-five in front of the crowd. And she stopped walking. And she's like, no. I'm not going to do that, Daddy. I don't want to be in front of all those people. I don't want to make a mistake in front of all of them. And it just reminded me of this reality of how we can oftentimes live our lives not believing the goodness. And I, I told Summer, honey, just remember, if you only make mistakes, if you do nothing good in that game, mommy and daddy love you the same. And if you score a bunch of points and you look really good to everyone else on that court, we won't love you any more than we already love you. It doesn't matter. Our love for you is as great as we know how to love you. And it applies to what we're talking about here. If the most powerful being in the world who has created all things, who is perfect in every way, and he loves us, and he accepts us, then what do we have to worry about when we enter into his presence? Nothing. We can have confidence in all things to enter into his presence. Because he's faithful. The author of Hebrews has spoken of the superiority of Jesus over everything. And he has essentially been saying what we read in verse 23 over and over. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. And he wants us to hear this over and over. This is 
essential. This is not to be a distant thought that we just think of once in a while that, that comforts us at times. We have to embrace this reality. Jesus is faithful. More faithful than, than any person. Like if you think your spouse or some other person is, is really faithful, Jesus is far beyond that. Far beyond that. Ask my wife. Okay? Ask my wife. Jesus is far beyond faithful than anyone or anything. So this vertical confidence that we have to enter God's presence must be rooted in a faithful reality. We won't be confident to enter God's presence unless there's something outside of us, unless there's a reason for us to have confidence, and that reason is Jesus. So everything is built on him. When we understand what Jesus has done for us, when we understand who Jesus is, when we understand at least a glimpse of the depth of his faithfulness and his goodness and his love towards us, it will profoundly shape us and change us. And so that's what we get in these last number of verses. This is what gospel belief looks like. Three exhortations we get. Three, three frameworks of, of what gospel belief provides in us. So, so these are, don't hear suggestions, okay? The things we are talking about are not suggestions, something to aspire to. This is what believing the gospel will shape in you. Maybe falteringly, not perfectly for sure, but increasingly this is what the gospel will shape in you. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, so we, we've got this clear call to draw near to God. Okay? As we read on, we're also going to see how this is applied horizontally. Okay, as we relate to other people. But notice what accompanies our drawing near here. We're to do it with a true heart in full assurance of faith. A true heart in full assurance of faith. I know from talking with many of you that we feel lack of assurance from time to time. We have doubts that come into our minds. We have questions that arise. And we wonder, am I? Am I good enough? Have I done enough? Assurance eludes us. Many of us know that our hearts are chasing other passions. There's other things out there that entice us that motivate us. Our heart is not truly, fully for God. So it, it's chasing love, or it's chasing comfort. It's chasing pleasure of some sort. Pleasure in maybe our hobbies, pleasure in money, pleasure in possessions. This is what erodes our full assurance. We have half-hearted lives. 
we, we live half-hearted lives for Jesus. And, and what this leads to then is we wonder if we've done enough. R- rather than giving our hearts truly, fully to God, we want to give him some of it. But we want Jesus plus. And I don't know what that plus is for all of you, but we want Jesus plus whatever. So we can give some of our heart to Jesus and some of our heart to this other thing or things. But this is what erodes our full assurance. And it leads to us wondering if we've done enough. But even that, we won't think too long about have we done enough because even that makes us uncomfortable, right? And what we've done in this whole thought process is we've completely moved beyond Jesus because we will find ourselves trusting in what we do. Whenever we're asking the question, conscious or unconscious, have we done enough, we're now trusting in what we do. And we're basing our acceptance, our confidence, on our own merit. And we will always, always feel our insufficiency, eventually. We will get to that point of insufficiency, the questioning, the doubt. Our divided heart will lead to faltering faith, and it will lead to us feel, feeling our own lack. So we're trusting in self and in things that cannot give us what we need. So, so what we're doing is we're pursuing satisfaction, and in our pursuit of satisfaction outside of Jesus, we're dissatisfying ourselves. We're basically kicking our own butt is what we're doing. Our pursuit of satisfaction outside of Jesus will lead us to the very thing that we're not wanting is dissatisfaction. That's not believing the gospel. Believing the gospel gives us hearts fixated on Jesus. Believing the gospel will lead assurance of salvation. Notice I'm saying believing the gospel. I'm not saying doing a bunch of religious exercises. Believing the gospel is what leads to assurance of salvation. Believing the gospel leads to freedom from condemnation. You haven't done enough. You're not good enough. You're a failure. All right, so let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith by believing the gospel and not believing in other things. Secondly, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So this idea of holding fast has, uh, it, it pictures kind of clinging or striving or fighting for something, right? No, notice also what it says here is let us hold fast. In all of these exhortations, there's this communal component. So it's not you hold fast for yourself. It's let us hold fast with one another. Let's help one another in this. So it's holding fast to the confession of our hope. It's holding fast to the gospel. But if you think about this idea of holding fast is fighting for something There are things we fight for in life. Like we will strive, we will work hard for things. What is that for you? When you get in a fight 
with maybe your spouse or, or someone else? What are you fighting for in that? What are you willing to sacrifice for? What do you sweat for? What do you use your leisure and free time for? This verse is saying if you are to work hard at anything in life, may it be confessing Jesus, who is the only hope that this world has left. The only hope this world has left is Jesus. And it is th- this verse is telling us that we are to work hard at confessing him because he is all. This confession is to mark our lives. We're not to veer from it, from confessing the gospel. We are to be unwavering in holding tight to Jesus and in helping one another hold tight to Jesus as well. And, and just note, we, we've talked about this earlier in our Hebrew series. Don't get the idea the holding fast is just you working hard. Remember, as we've talked about earlier in this sermon series, us holding fast is dependent on the fact that Jesus first and primarily holds fast to us. So our holding fast to him is flowing out of him holding fast to us and providing us what we need, the strength, the perseverance, whatever else, so that we might then hold fast to him as well. So even in this call to hold fast to the confession of our hope, Jesus provides us what we need in that as well. Okay, last exhortation here in verses 24 and 25, and this is really where we see this horizontal reality, this fact that that we are uh, the indicative statements about who Jesus is, is and what he's done play out in how we relate to one another. It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So these last couple of verses drive home that everything we're talking about is not an individualistic endeavor. Jesus' church is a community. If you are a Christian, you are being moved from thinking of yourself as an individual to something that, to a greater whole to a community. So what this is saying is before we consider many things, before we consider what Netflix shows we're going to watch, we are to consider Jesus' church. That, that, that's Kevin's paraphrase, okay? So if these verses, if we just sit with these verses, and if these ver- verses don't press us, if they don't agitate us in some way, then we're probably not feeling the weight of what they're trying to communicate. Because Jesus has been faithful to us, we will be faithful to others. Because Jesus has been faithful to us, in the face of our unfaithfulness towards him, we will be faithful to others even when they are unfaithful to us. 
This is brutally hard. To be faithful to another who is unfaithful to us. To love another who is unloving towards us. It says we are to stir others up to love and good works. Do you know what stirs up others to love and good works? Love and good works. Not judgment, not exasperation, not anger. Because the tendency for all of us is, uh, I think so-and-so should do things differently. And when I say differently, I mean they should do things the way I would do it. Right? And, and when people don't do things the way that we want them to do, or they don't do things in the way that we think they should do things, or they don't meet our standard of service or commitment or whatever it might be, our tendency is to want to be harsh. But harshness stirs up harshness. Be, being harsh will stir up more harshness. And that gets ugly really fast. As it says in verse 25, we are to encourage one another. So when we are frustrated, when we are annoyed, annoyed in our house is like a four-letter word, okay? My wife hates that word. When we are frustrated, when we are annoyed, we want to take it out on others. That is our fleshly desire within us. And this is why gospel-centeredness is so vital. Grace, undeserved kindness, unearned favor, grace begets grace. We sinned against God. What we deserved was to get whacked. Instead of us getting whacked, Jesus was whacked for us. This reality has to shape us deeply. This is what it means to be gospel-centered, to continually coming back to this reality. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. That reality of what he did on the cross has to shape how we view people when they frustrate us. It has to shape how we interact with people when they anger us. It has to. That's what it means to believe the gospel. So how do we stir others up to love and good works? What does that actually look like? I think many people would say, well, we should pray. That's a good Christian answer. Pray, prayer is a great thing. But, but I would push this, because when we think prayer, then we oftentimes think individualism, right? I'll pray for you on my own, when it's convenient for me, where I don't have to pray in front of other people. I would say pray with other people. And even beyond that, ask others, including non-Christians, how you can pray for them. And then pray for them. And then follow up with them to see how they're doing in that thing that they shared with you. Or invite people into your home. They might even reciprocate. And as you invite people into your home, you're helping to build a culture, a gospel-centered culture that we are trying to build here at Center Church. Serve others sacrificially. Use your free time, your leisure time, to serve people. 
Invite people into your hobbies. Share your skills, your gifts, your possessions. Freely give to others what's been freely given to you. Confess your sins to others. It will embolden others to do the same. I promise you it will. Maybe not immediately, but if you keep at it, it will embolden others to do the same. Ask questions of others. Take an interest in others. Listen intently to the answers that they provide to you. Don't think merely about what's meaningful to you. Learn what's meaningful to other people. Talk with other people about this concept of stirring up one another to love and good works. Actually flesh that out with people and then do it with one another. All right, here's where we also then hear the rebuke. It says, don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. The Bible is explicit. We need to consistently gather with Christians. To believe the gospel, to live as a, Christians, as a Christian, means we will consistently, not haphazardly, not accidentally, not when it's convenient, we will consistently, regularly, sacrificially gather with other Christians. So here at Center Church, we emphasize two formal gatherings, okay? Sunday morning and community groups. We want you to make a priority of those things. Not just when you feel like it, not just when you haven't had a busy week. We want you to prioritize those things. Not because we just want a bunch of people here. Not so we can say, oh, we have this number of people in our community groups. This is for your good. You need this. I need this. We, together, need this. We need to gather with one another. We need to hear the gospel from one another. We need people to take an interest in us. We need to take an interest in other people so that we and others can be reminded of the gospel, of the fact that Jesus has taken an interest in us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we earned it. Not because it's easy. But because Jesus has done this for us. But it's not just showing up to these things either. It's not just doing the minimum, okay? It's, regular, or it's important that we regularly show up to these corporate gatherings but to also do it intentionally. So to think about it before, to pray about it before. Think of questions that you can ask, like, like who's going to need encouragement? Who do I know has been having a hard week or is going through a hard time? What questions should I ask of people? Whose voice is not being heard? Who can I pursue? Who's being, or who is alone? Sh- should we invite some of these people over to our house. Can I contribute something in some way to this gathering? What, what would be a blessing to others? We have these formal gatherings we want you to be a part of. We also want there to be informal gatherings. We talk about being a deprogrammed church. We have these two forms of gathering that we stress so that you have a lot of other time, so that we're not having all these church programs going on so that 
you can invite other people in informal ways from Center Church and from your neighborhood and from your place of employment and other friends and family that you have so that you can gather with others and remind them of the gospel and be reminded of the gospel as well. We are responsible for each other. The Bible repeatedly speaks of the church as a family. Families are dysfunctional and messy. They just are. Every single family is. But that is not a good reason to opt out. That is not a good reason to just be half-hearted about it. The gospel says Jesus has never been half-hearted. He has never left us in the midst of our foolishness. Because we've done dumb stuff, he doesn't say, ah, I don't want to hang out with them today. We, you, are responsible for one another's growth and maturity. And here's the thing about this. If you ever feel like someone else needs to step up, like someone else isn't pulling their weight, that they need to do more, that's probably an indication, a call for you to engage in some form of training, some inviting of this person so that you can build relationship with them, so that you can help lead them in a direction where they can embody the gospel to Jesus' church in a greater way. And here's the icing on the cake with all of this. It says at the, at the end of verse 25, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So wherever we're at, wherever I'm at, I need to grow up into this. I need to mature in it. I, I can't say, well, I've done enough. All the more as we see the day drawing near. The day here being spoken of here is Jesus' return. All the more as we get closer to that day, we're called to love and care for Jesus' church, to invest in Jesus' church, to build up Jesus' church, to stir one another up to love and good works, to gather with each other. So two points of gospel application here as we close. First of all, Jesus is faithful. It's standard. You've heard it many times over and over. I would encourage you to think on this. Think on this. Don't take it for granted. This is a massive truth. And even because we live in a sinful flesh, we will minimize Jesus' faithfulness. Our unfaithfulness causes us to minimize his faithfulness towards us. He serves us. He loves us. He keeps us to the point of death. Jesus is faithful. And Jesus is faithful. And this is the ground and the goal for our faithfulness to Jesus and his church. It's the ground, it's the beginning, it's the motivation for us to be faithful to Jesus and his church. Half-hearted, flaky faith is not what Jesus produces. Sacrificial faithfulness without complaint is what Jesus produces. So there is this call. As we hear Jesus is faithful, there's a call for us to die to self. 
Don't live for yourself. Don't seek to be faithful to you. Seek to be faithful to the faithful one. Serve your family, nuclear, church. Seek gospel advancement in many ways in all of life. We're going to take a few moments here and we're going to remember the fact that Jesus was faithful to us. He was faithful to us to the point of death and and we're going to observe this bread and this cup as reminders of how his body was beaten and his blood was shed for our sins. He was faithful to the point of death. Unbelievable. Amazing. He loves us to that point. So we're going to take some moments here to reflect on this fact, to express our thankfulness and our praise to him. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus for his sacrifice, we want to invite you guys to come and observe these elements, be reminded of the fact that Jesus has given himself for you. He has been unfaithful so that you, in your unfaithfulness, might be counted faithful. So in a moment, the worship team's going to come up. We'll have an opportunity as they play. You can come and take the the bread and the cup. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then I will uh, read a passage of Scripture to lead, lead us into this time. God, thank you for this reminder that you are faithful. You are something that we are not, and you are something that we need. In these moments, as we reflect on how you have been faithful to us, would you help us to see in a new way, more clearly, more convincingly, how you have been faithful to us? Would you amaze us? Would you cause our faith in you to grow? Thank you for the fact that you've given of your body and your blood for us. God, may it not be old to us. May it not be rote. May this time not be ritualistic to us. May we be reminded that it is through death that we find life, through the death of Jesus that we can find spiritual life. So God, have your way in these moments and in us in this week. Remind us often of the fact that you are faithful. In your great name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. I'm going to read this passage of scripture for us. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's remember and celebrate together.